But I think we could all agree that without a question, what God has asked of Moses was a very difficult thing, wasn't it? To lead God's people out of bondage and through the wilderness for 40 years into the front gate of the promised land. Not himself able to go, but leading the people to the front door of that beautiful promised land, only to be taken by the Father, and they entered the promised land without him. It was a difficult task. And without a question, I think, what we have studied so far in this long study of Romans 12:1, just one verse, and all the complexities that are there, most of us, and I have talked to some of you, this is a difficult thing that he is asking of us, isn't it? I mean, it's taken us almost seven Sundays to come to the final phrase in this one passage, Romans 12, 1. And in the complexities of what God is asking and all of the the things and the ramifications that are wrapped up in this one little verse, it seems like the whole book of Romans is wrapped in and concluded right here. We have a tendency as we analyze and evaluate exactly what it is that God is asking of us, God, this is incredibly difficult. And I think that's a fair statement to make. It's not impossible because God would not ask us to do anything that is impossible because all things become possible with him. So it's not an impossibility. It may be difficult, but not an impossibility. And so we come to this text and we sort of ask ourselves, you know, this is a very difficult thing. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That last phrase, which is your spiritual worship. The Apostle Paul, through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is well aware of who he is addressing in this passage. He's addressing a church that is made up primarily of Gentiles and Jews. And there's a lot of conflict in trying to merge these two cultures together. The Jews are the legalists, and, and, and the Gentiles, they come from a background of reason and rationalization from the Roman culture, and they, they came to faith in Christ. And now the Apostle Paul, understanding who his audience is, says to them as he concludes with this incredible, pack-powered impact of, 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 a, of a request, he says, I want you now to offer to God, which is a spiritual worship, which is your spiritual worship. And so we understand as we look at the text that the Apostle Paul is appealing to them in this one phrase. It's a rational response to a reasonable request. What God is asking of them and of us is not unreasonable. It's a reasonable request. And upon asking from us this reasonable request, he is asking them and he's asking us to bring into it some sort of logic, some sort of thoughtfulness, some sort of, 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 of the mind, so to speak, in trying to figure out now what we have learned and what he has asked, this is a rational response to a reasonable request. In that passage, he says, in that one little last phrase at the end of 12.1, he said, which is? He, he sort, of, sort of combines those two phrases together with the, those, that, that, that word is is not there, but it's put there for emphasis for us who are in English, which is, he, he's connecting what he has asked for and what he is giving to us as a rationale for that. He's connecting the two phrases together, which is the one and only thing that you can do that is a spiritual worship. That word spiritual can also mean rational. It means thoughtful. It means logical. 
And the word worship is an ambiguous word here, and it can be used for worship or it can be used for service. But when you combine the two together, I'm, 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 I'm of the opinion that any service that we offer to God is worship, like what we do in here. We are servicing God. We are, we are servicing him with our mouth, with our ears, with our eyes, with our minds, with our hearts. We are rendering service to God in the form of worship. And so we become living worshipers that are worshiping God together, not just in here, but in the daily lives that we live outside of here. And I think there's a connotation here that he's also trying to imply that that worship is not just done in a setting like this, but worship is done Monday through Saturday in the lives that we live for him. We are living out worship as we are testifying and, and glorifying him with our lives. And so he's saying to, to them and to us, in light of what God is asking of us, this is reasonable, it is rational, it is logical, it is the least we can do for all that God has done. And so I want to take a look at that very, very quickly, and I want to look at seven aspects about what it means to offer God this rational response in, uh, this rational response in light of a reasonable request. A lot of ours, I kind of get turned around there. How about you? So let's look at it. What God is asking is rational, number one, because it respects his will. It respects his will. That's why it's rational. If you notice in the text, in Romans 12, 1, he opens up, as we have studied numerous times in these last several weeks, with the words, I appeal to you. I, not the Apostle Paul, but God, through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I, God, through Paul, am appealing to you, those of you who are in Christ. And this word appeal is a word that, that sort of gets misplaced here, because it's not, as we read it, a command, it doesn't seem as if he is demanding it. He is appealing to us, right? It's an appeal. As I read that this morning, I kind of heard my mother in the back of my brain. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it, even as long as it's been since I've been under my parents' roof, my mother, when she would ask us to do something, would always ask, please. Would drive my dad nuts. And I know they listen to the services, so I'm going to get some sort of response from that. So the 1415 South Topeka, no, anyway. Um, and, and it used to, don't ask please when you're telling them to do something. But my mother always did it. But just because she gave us some instruction and told us what she desired from us and, and put that addendum on it, please, didn't get us excused from having to do it. Now, did it? She still expected us to do it, but she asked in a polite, kind, a nice way. This is a request that I'm asking of you, please. Now, God is not saying pretty please here, and he's not even saying please, but he is saying I am appealing to you. In other words, if you respect my will, this is what you will do. I mean, so much so that in Romans 12, 1, he tells us that the will of God is good, it is it acceptable, and it is perfect. It is God's will. And we are told to discern the will of God in Romans 12, 2. And so in discerning God's will, he is telling us in this passage, this is my will for you. So what God has asked before this in, this, in these three things, to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, that's not really up for debate it's not really up for a vote god has told us we should do it now i can remember when my children would always ask 
why? When you would instruct them to do something, they would ask, why? And some of you were not like me. I many times gave them a reason why. I mean, I did. I, I justified their, their questioning, and I wanted them to understand why I was asking when I was asking. And I would hope that there are times they would be rational in their response. And uh, sometimes they wanted it so bad that they were not rational in their response because they didn't like the answer and the reason why. But God is saying to us what I sometimes said to them. When they didn't like the answer, I simply said, because I told you so. You know, you always get that response. Because I told you so. And because they respected me, they knew that if they didn't, there would be consequences to their rebellion and their disobedience. What, what God is saying here in this passage that that, that that which is your spiritual worship, I am requesting this of you out of respect to my will. Respect me enough to do what I'm asking you to do. And that is a huge deal for us today, for the lack of respect is plagiarized our culture today. We don't respect anyone. And so to respect God is asking us to do something that is hard. But God said, if you respect me, I am appealing to you in a, in a kind, in a gentle, in an urgent fashion. I am appealing to you. But don't misunderstand that this is my will and I am expecting you to be responsible enough to do exactly what I'm asking you to do. I am appealing to you to do what I'm asking you to do. It's a rational response to a reasonable request. It's not up for debate, guys. We just must do it. We must present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. Why? Because this is your reasonable response to a wonderful request. Number two, not only does it Rational because it respects his will, but secondly, it reveals his activity. Notice in the text, in the second part of verse 1, he says, Therefore, by the mercies of God. God reminds them, as he reminds us, with the word therefore, pointing back to all that he has said between Romans 1 and the end of Romans chapter 11. And we have seen this a number of times. And God here in this last phrase is saying the reason why this is an act of spiritual worship is because it reveals my activity in your life. We have already seen the wonderful activity of God in numerous times, in numerous ways throughout these last few weeks. We've seen Romans 3.23 says all of us have sinned. Romans 6.23, the wage of that sin is death. Romans 10.8 and, uh, and 9 or is it 9 and 10? That if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that Christ has raised him from the dead. Thank you, Donnie. We will be saved. One of our youngest converts is helping me out here. Just want to let you know, guys. Sometimes the brain gets stuck on something and doesn't get off. But anyway, we've already seen how the beautiful salvation of God works and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that when we place our faith in him, saving faith in him, believing who he is and what he did for us, he then gives us the new life. He interjects, he revives, he resuscitates us from deadness to life. He's already talked about the fact that he has revealed our salvation. So therefore, in light of the activity of God, saving your dead souls and breathing new life into you, you should want to do this. 
Not only that, but he says, by the mercies of God. Why were you saved? I mean, you're not receiving what you rightfully deserve, which is condemnation and judgment. But by his mercy, we saw in 916, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God has been merciful to us, and out of his mercy, in that he reached down to the pit of hell and saved our soul, because of his tender mercies, we should want to serve him, and we would want to yield to him in this way, what he is requesting and requiring of us who are his followers. And my rational response reveals now the activity of my salvation. But this salvation is not something that happens one, it's not a one-time event. We have already seen it's a lifetime progression, isn't it? It's ongoing where he is sanctifying us. He is perfecting himself in us. And in Romans 8, 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are in the process of being transformed. We are moving toward something, aren't we? We are growing. We are maturing. And so it's not just on the mercies that we received when we were saved, but it's his ongoing mercies. You're going to need more mercy from God after or post-salvation. Right? Can I get any amen to that? You know how you are. You still need his mercies who are never ceasing toward us. His continued mercies upon our life and he continues in his activity to pour mercy upon mercy upon mercy because we are sinners and and in spite of the fact that we are saved, we still sin and we still require the ongoing activity of God in his tender mercies toward us. The activity of his mercy. It's interesting that we need to understand that once we are saved, we still need his tender mercies to be poured out upon us. And when we render to God that which he rightfully deserves, we reveal his activity of our salvation and his tender mercies in our lives. Number three, it reinforces his rule or his rulership in my life. It reinforces his rule. Interesting, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... The Apostle Paul is putting himself with those to whom he's addressing in the church in Rome. He calls them brothers because, you see, they are of the same faith. They possess the same same saving faith in Jesus. And that saving faith has brought them now adopted as children into the same family. And as we are brought into that family, we then share the same father. As family members, we have a father. And because he is the father, he is the head of the family. And there is only one head of the family. And that is God the Father who reigns and who rules on his throne. He is Lord. We see in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. In Romans 13.14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're in a struggle. We talked about this for, for several Sundays now, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. How do we win this battle between the flesh and the spirit? We clothe ourselves. We put on the Lordship of Jesus. I know we are in a warm spell. And man, hadn't it been great? Thank you, El Nino. Beautiful day yesterday. I went out and walked to my neighborhood and actually 
broke a sweat. A beautiful day. But when it's normally cold in February, what do we do to keep the cold out? We put on what? Coats. And I've learned here that it's easy to layer up so you can layer off when you get warm. Right? But you layer up, you clothe yourself to do what? To prevent the cold from penetrating and to to making you cold. And he says to us, we need to put on the Lord Jesus. Put on the Lord. Put Jesus Lord. Envelop him. Embrace him. Put him on. Make him Lord of every aspect. And as he surrounds you, as you make him the Lord of your life, it protects you against the flesh. And so when he asks us to submit ourselves unto him as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him, we we do so because when we do it, it reinforces his lordship in our lives and helps us keep him lord of our lives. Because we know that when he ceases to be lord in our lives, and he can be because you see, I don't know about you, but self likes to push Jesus off the throne and jump on himself, doesn't he? The flesh, if we're not careful, will jump on the throne of our lives and dictate and determine the thoughts that we think and the things that we see and the things that we hear and the things that come out of our mouth and the places that we go. And our minds and our hearts and our bodies then don't reflect the fact that we are now under the possession of the lordship of Jesus and we are to reflect that lordship by what we think and what we feel and what we do with our bodies. But when I'm wrapped in the lordship of Jesus, it reinforces his rulership. And it protects me from the flesh. And when I'm protected from the flesh, I'm protected from sin that can hinder my relationship with the Lord. Number four, we need to reflect. It reflects his sacrifice. What God is asking is rational because it respects his will, reveals his activity, reinforces his rule, but four, reflects his sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Notice he says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the one of three things that he asks. We've already studied this at length to present our bodies, the mind, the heart, the body, which is that which has not yet been redeemed. It'll be redeemed in resurrection day when we are transported and our souls unite with our bodies. If we have died or if we're alive and he comes back, we'll be transformed in the likeness of Christ. And then our bodies will be redeemed and we will reflect the glory of Jesus. But until then, we are stuck in these bodies and, and our minds can think thoughts they shouldn't think and our hearts can feel things they shouldn't feel and our eyes will see things they shouldn't see and our ears will hear things they shouldn't hear. And, and so we can use our, our members as instruments of unrighteousness, but yet he says we're to use them as instruments of righteousness. We're to present our bodies now as a living, not dead. In the Old Testament, you made a sacrifice. In the New Testament, now we become a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. But the word sacrifice is a word that most of us don't like to use in our vocabulary today. And sacrifice points us to the sacrifice of Jesus, who in verse Six, chapter 6, verse 8 in Romans, is that if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Christ died. Why did he have to die? For he who knew no sin became sin for us, did he not? And on that cross at Calvary, when he was nailed to that cross and elevated up into the sky, and he hung there, and he bled those, those, those drops of blood, and, and as he died and he breathed his last breath, he was taking upon him sin, himself our sin against God, and he died in our place. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be reconciled to God the Father. He sacrificed his life so that we could live. And when I am willing then to lay my life on the altar and to offer to him this living sacrifice, I know it's sacrifice. I know it's costly. I know that sometimes following him is painful. I know that it's hard. And yet, when we reflect upon what he has done and that ultimate sacrifice, it seems little in compare to what he has done for us, doesn't it? And so when I yield myself to him as a living sacrifice, it it is a rational response because in my mind and in my heart, I know that it is the least that I can do for what he has done for me. It's not doing that so that I can earn merit or deserve what he has done, but it is in response to what he has done for me. And so it reflects this beautiful sacrifice that he gave for me. Number five, it raises his standard. It's rational because it raises his standard. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy. Holy. One word, holy. Present yourself completely and totally to God, holy. To be holy. To raise the standard of God. That word holy means to be set apart. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were, we were cleansed, we were purified by the work of the Holy Spirit at conversion, and, and we now stand before God holy. And he says that once we are now holy, we are to continue to live holy. We are continue to offer to him a holy lifestyle, holiness. There's a standard that he has, we've, we've talked about this several times. The standard is who? It is Jesus. I don't know how many of you saw uh, this week, the the uh, interview that I had with uh, KSN News and Mark came in a little over an hour. We taped a whole bunch of stuff and and uh, they used about what three minutes of all that. And then on the website, there's about a 24 minute part of the interview. There's a whole bunch of stuff they left out, and you can go there and take a look at it. When we're talking about the whole concept of of the standard in which our culture here has deemed is acceptable to God and what is acceptable to man. And there's, there's a, a direct conflict between man's standard and God's standard. And what's not in the interview is a time when Mark and I talked about the fact that God sets the standard so high that nobody could reach it. That's on purpose. Because if he set a standard that we could reach independently apart from Christ, we wouldn't need Jesus. But because it's a standard so high, a standard of perfection, a standard of flawlessness, a standard of sinlessness, that standard of perfection, we cannot reach. We then understand our need and the necessary position that we have in needing a Christ and needing a Savior. I can't measure up to that, so I need to look to someone who has measured up to that, who has died for my sin. And so by giving ourselves in this way, by raising the standard of God, not elevating it so that I can reach it or so my culture can accept it, by raising the standard, in spite of the standard that I cannot reach, I still strive for that standard. And when I present myself 
as a living sacrifice and seek purity. I am to continue to pursue purity in my life just because I prayed to trust Jesus as my Savior and he's cleansing me of my sin and I walk out and say, thank you, God, amen, I walk out. I can't just continue to live the life that I want to live. I mean, there was, there was a problem with that, not just in the church today, but in the early church. A lot of times we think, you know, there was an interview, a, 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 a conflicting interview with mine, about two individuals who claim to be Christians and who have concluded that God accepts their lifestyle. They've been monogamous partners for 20 years. And while it's not my position to judge, uh, because God gave me, didn't give me the gavel and I don't wear the, the, the robe and I'm not on the bench, only God can judge and condemn. Not we, not you, not me, not any of us. Only God can do that. But I can elevate the standard that God has said. God has set a standard. And what we've done is we've lowered the standard to an acceptable position to embrace my lifestyle. And that, that's not a new problem in the church. It's not new. Because if it were new, we wouldn't have Romans 6.1. Where Paul says to the church in Rome, and Rome was the most sexually explicit there were it is it is described rome is described as a cesspool of sin anything that you wanted you could find anything you wanted to do you could do it was available and accessible for everyone sounds like today and the church was being saved people were being saved out of that and there were some who were saying you know what i'm under grace now i'm under grace God's merciful and he's gracious to me and my salvation is eternally safe and secure. I know when I die, I'm going to heaven, so therefore I can live any way I want to. And Paul says, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. That's a, that's a message the church needs today. Should we go on sinning so that grace can be abound? By no means. And we should choose the standard of God. And God is saying as we choose this standard, we elevate his standard to a, a place where we honor and glorify him by the lives that we live. Number six, it realizes his desires. It's rational because it respects his will and reveals his activity and reinforces his rule and reflects his sacrifice, but it raises his standard and realizes his desire. Notice acceptable to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. God did raise a standard that we can't set. Why are we acceptable to God in that standard that we can't measure up to? Because of saving faith in Jesus. I don't care how hard you try, you're never going to measure up to the standard that God has set. I know I don't. I know I will never will. I know you never will. And yet the standard raised so high is met because Jesus met it for us. And on that cross where he took upon himself our sin, dying in our place, he reconciled us to the Father. We now have the boldness to enter into the very throne room of God and know that we are acceptable to him. Why? Because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the position that we've been planted on now that is eternally secure in Christ. It's because of what we have received. We're acceptable. 
But not only because of what we have received, but if you take a look at, at what he says in Romans 6, 22, for by now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Romans 8, 29, for those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's an acceptability that we have upon salvation where we can now enter boldly into the very throne room of God and we know that we're acceptable and he is our Abba Father. And yet after we pray the prayer of faith, as I said earlier, we can't just walk out and live any life we want to live. We continue to live a life that is acceptable to God. The reason why we're seeking to please him, as we saw last week, is that we want our lives to bring a smile to his face. God is saying, this is what I desire. Have you ever bought a gift before? Someone has told you, you know, it's their birthday or it's an anniversary, and you've talked about what they would, you'd like to exchange, and they have just gone out and said, this is what I want. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes your guys, are, they just don't pick up. You kind of, you know, you kind of halfway say it, and they're not, you don't know what I'm talking about, ladies? We guys, we got hard heads a little bit. And we're a little bit hard of hearing. We just lack a sense of perceptivity that sometimes just, it's how we're made, okay? Uh, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like a light bulb in the darkness. You know, the light bulbs are, are tight and they just, and they die. And I keep wondering, why are you attracted to this light? You know when you're attracted to it, it's going to kill you. So ladies, you're attracted to us for some reason, but it kills you. I get it. But that's how God made it that way. Yeah. Where was I going with all that? <laughs> Back on track. And you tell your husband what you want, and instead of getting what you want, he goes out and gets something else that he wants to give you. Yeah? And you open it, and you are disappointed in what he gave you because it wasn't what you asked for, and it wasn't what you wanted. I think there are some times that we spend so much time kicking up a lot of dust trying to offer God stuff that he doesn't want, and that we wonder why he's not smiling at our offering. God has told us what he wants. He wants us to give him a sacrifice that is acceptable to him, not acceptable to us. And I guarantee you our standard is lower than his. And most of us need to come to him and say, Lord, help me determine your will. Raise the standard of acceptability in my perception so that as I seek, as hard as it is to offer to you what is acceptable to you, not what's acceptable to me. We, we should seek to be acceptable, to be pleasing to him. And so that's the concept. As we give God what he has asked of us, we are giving to him that which is acceptable to him. And we are realizing that we are fulfilling his will, his desires in our offering. When we offer ourselves, we offer ourselves in a way that should please him. And if it doesn't please him, then we ask him, why is what I'm offering isn't pleasing to you? And we adjust our lives to bring pleasure and to bring a smile to his face, not ours. And then lastly, it's rational because it recognizes his worth. I offer God... 
myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him because it honors and glorifies him, which is your spiritual worship. It is rational. It is logical. It is reasonable. It's the most thoughtful thing I can do because it is worship. We worship what we value. And if we value God more than we value anything and anyone else, we will want to do what we can to express that value to him and to bring honor and glory and praise to him. Worship. So what service must I render to him that brings honor and glory to him? Interesting, I ran across this uh, funny story. And um, uh, at, at one recent wedding, a certain pastor performed The bride and the groom chose to place the individual candles back into their holders with the the flames burning. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I've done many, many funerals over 30 plus. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? Whoa! The Freudian slip. Hey, if you were married to me, you'd think it was a funeral too, okay? But anyway... Whoa, thank you. I need some help today. You know, there's always, they do candles. And uh, they, they take the two, you know, one mom lights one candle and the other mom lights the other. And then the two at the point of the ceremony, they make one. And, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me. Uh, there, there are two things you can do. You can keep the candles lit, which means two individual people becoming one. They're two individual, independent people. Uh, become one, or they can blow them out, meaning the two people are dying to themselves and becoming one. So that's, inc- that's a point in the ceremony that you can understand what they're trying to convey to you in regard to what they believe about their marriage. And on this particular time when this came in the service, just before the groom could get situated to escort the bride to the altar for the final prayer and the announcement, the pastor noted a little impish gleam in the eye of the bride And unexpectedly, she leaned over and blew out her husband candle, leaving hers lit. And a pastor was sharing this with a group of other pastors. And one of the pastors then commented, during the marriage ceremony, two become one. After the honeymoon, they discover which one. I described last week... This whole relationship with Jesus as a marriage. And we are the bride and he is the groom. And there are many people who come to faith in Jesus with that very attitude. I'm going to leave mine lit and blow his out. When in reality, we should leave his lit and blow ours out. Why would we do that? Because he alone deserves the honor, the glory, and the praise. He alone is Lord of lords and King of kings and worthy of such a sacrifice. And in light of what God demands and deserves, how do you measure up? How do I measure up? Why should I do this? We've already given you seven reasons why. So why don't we? 
I would suggest to you that there's something wrong with our hearts. And the reason why there's something wrong with our hearts is because there's something wrong with the way we are thinking. Because if we would think logically, rationally, thoughtfully in reflecting about all that he has done for us and all that we have received, we would recognize and understand it is the least we can do for him. To offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God with every fiber of our being and every breath that we take. Totally, unreservedly, His and His alone. Not my own, not others, His. For He and He alone is the Lord who deserves to be praised. In light of what God demands and deserves, how do I measure up? And the final question, what decision or action must I do that would reflect a sincere desire to offer myself completely to him? Think about that for a minute. I'm going to ask Lisa to come and just quietly play. Before we sing our invitation hymn, I want you to just reflect on that for a moment. 99.9% of us, 99.999% of us need to make a decision today. Without question. If you think you don't need to make a decision, you become pious, callous, hard-hearted, and insensitive to the will and the word of God in your life. And we're not here just to have an activity or just to be entertained. We're here to encounter the living God. And when we encounter the living God and we encounter his word and his spirit speaks and communicates, either we haven't heard him because we are not listening and we're too hard-hearted, or maybe we are and we're just being rebellious and we're just not willing to give him what he rightfully deserves. And if that's our response, shame on us. Because it's the most thoughtful most rational, most logical thing we can do. Which is why he says in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is a rational response to a reasonable request in light of what he's done for us.
Good morning. We begin our worship service this morning through the ordinance of baptism. We have three coming this morning who've received Christ into their life and are making him savior and boss, and they want to give that visible testimony through baptism this morning. First is Pamela. If you're part of Pamela's family, her life group, or have played a part in her decision to receive Christ, would you stand in support of her this morning? All right, thank you. Pamela, have you asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? And is it your desire to be his follower for the rest of your life? Yes. Because of that decision this morning, it's my privilege to get to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. This is Maria, and if you are part of Maria's family or her life group or played a part in her decision for this morning, would you stand so we can recognize you? Maria, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss, and is it your desire to be his follower the rest of your life? Because of that decision this morning, it's my privilege to get to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. This is my friend Jacob. If you are part of Jacob's family or his life group and played a part in his decision, would you stand so that we can recognize you? Jacob, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior, your boss, and is it your desire to be his follower the rest of your life? Because of your decision, Jacob, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in the of life. 